The reading is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, reading from verse 40. And we pick up Luke's narrative. Jesus has just been with the Gerasenes. He's just delivered legion of his demons and sent a whole bunch of pigs into the lake. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Just then there came a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, and though she spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and press in on you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me, for I noticed the power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the leader's house to say, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard this, he replied, do not fear, only believe and she will be saved. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except a Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. They were all weeping and wailing for her, but he said, do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once. Then he directed them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he ordered them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of God. God. Do not be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. At the center of that reading, Jesus charged to, to Jairus. I want to start by telling you a bit of a story. So, uh, some of you might know, probably most of you, I'm, I'm more of an introvert by trade. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I flew out to New Zealand by myself, um, not on a whim, or like a jolly. It was my sister was getting married. Um, but uh, if some of you will know, that it's quite literally as far as you can go, is like the antipodes of the UK was actually somewhere just off the southeast coast of New Zealand, but it's as far as you can go. So I had a lot of time by myself, and even an introvert of myself was, was thrust into desperation that I would talk to strangers. I even spoke to the people on the plane next to me. Um, I had a 13-hour layover in Sydney, and so a few Australians on my flight, they said, you know, you can't just loiter in Sydney airport, it's not that good, you have to go into the, the city center. So I went into the city. Um, again, in my desperation, I found myself talking to strangers of like where I should go, where was good coffee, 
saw things on the maps, like, is it worth... I stopped at a traffic light next to a lady I had to, like, start speaking to her. I think she thought I was about to mug her. But um, <laughs> I was essentially just asking, like, is, you know, like, apparently the Anzac Memorial is, like, just up there in the park. Is it worth going to? And she was like, yeah, you know, it's a bit of, like, a cool building. And um, so I wandered over. It looked oddly familiar to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. If anyone's either been to, like, D.C. or Sydney. And, um, and again, I found myself kind of loitering next to this, this group of tourists as they had a tour guide as she kind of explained the building. So not only was it just a cool building, but she explained all the little details of it. By the way, has anyone ever been to Sydney, gone to the Anzac Memorial? There we go, one person. But they were like explaining all the little details of it. And so then when I actually went inside, there was this greater appreciation. Not only was it, oh, just like lovely, ornate, uh, details to it, but rather because I'd overheard this tour guide explain all the little details, I had this greater appreciation of actually what was happening. And so the reason I tell you this is because often we need someone to kind of point out the details of what's going on. And I say that as a, I don't know, an introduction to highlight the way in which it's important as we read the Gospels to recognize the way in which the Holy Spirit used human authors. They used people like Luke to, to curate the story of what Jesus was doing, to shine light on, on specific details, to even, if you were really to, like, to read the stories, you'd realize there's a lot of things that don't make sense. It's because the narrators kind of change the chronology of things. But it's always to, to highlight Jesus in a certain way to reveal the nature of God. Does that make sense? I think it's important. And um, as we encounter this story, one of the, one of the big objections to, to Christianity is always like, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And I think this story in particular is a prime example of how you see God responding to, to bad things happening to good people. We can make all sorts of arguments where maybe the, the person afflicted by all the demons, maybe he kind of like made some poor life decisions, he like got in with the wrong crowds, he kind of like started worshipping the wrong things, and so this was a consequence to his action. Maybe you could say he was, he was guilty of some sin, and that's why he was afflicted naturally. But here we find these two women that is very much like evil and darkness. They've been subject to it, this sickness. And we find God's reaction revealed in the person of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so we pick up the story and in Luke's gospel you see him amongst the believers and he doesn't have a particularly warm welcome. He comes and proclaims in, in chapter 4 how essentially like, I am the Messiah. Like, I am him. And then they try and throw him off a cliff. And then so he, he travels to the other side of a lake to um, what people would describe as spiritually uncultivated Gentile territory. He goes, takes some of his disciples on a missions trip to proclaim a word, but he, he doesn't really speak very much, but rather he just displays the gospel. And great things occur. occur. And so here in this story, it, it opens as he, he returns. 
And I'm a bit conflicted because I'd like to say, oh, he, he returned to a warm welcome. But it's sort of like with a, with a question mark. I think for some of them, he did return and there was this, this expectation amongst them. Scholars will talk about the language. It, it points to this like messianic expectation. Maybe some of them were starting to be like more swayed to the position that Jesus was more than just another rabbi, more than just a, a really spiritually astute carpenter. Some of them were starting to wonder whether maybe Jesus was this Messiah that we've been hoping for. They had expectation. But throughout the narrative, I think what Luke does is he, he kind of makes you realize and see that it's such a mixed bag of perceptions of who Jesus is. Some people come to him desperately recognizing that he's the, the only hope they have. And other people, like Jairus' friend, just says, like, just don't bother this teacher. People still are a bit confused. And so hopefully we'll be able to unpack why, not only what this passage is saying, but actually why is it important to us. Does that sound all right? So we first come across Jairus. He is described much like the centurion in chapter 7 as someone who is probably of um, like a, a decent social status. He would have been respected within his community. But it is him that casts aside all his dignity. It's him who comes and, and like throws himself on the floor at the very feet of Jesus. And the language, it speaks to this persistent, desperate seeking of Jesus. He has an appropriate fear of God. He recognizes who he is. He recognizes that actually Jesus is the only one who is going to be able to help him. I'd say he's probably come to the end of himself where he realizes that, that nothing else works. Someone came and knocked on my door recently, and they, um, there was like three gentlemen, and you can probably understand where this story's going, and uh, dressed quite nicely in like shirt and ties. And um, I kind of opened the door, still in like scruffy running clothes from taking the dog out. And um, like a, a cheeky part of me had like a nice grin. And they said, you know what, can we just ask you a few questions? I was like, oh, be my guest. I said, oh, we just, we're just asking people like, if they have hope for the future. I was like, oh, yeah, I've got a lot of hope for the future. And I said, why is that? And I was like, Jesus Christ. It kind of like shocked them. I was like, we're, we're sort of singing from the same hymn sheet, aren't we? And he was like, sort of. But it's just this. That's more of just a funny anecdote to slip it in. But it's, do you have hope for the future? And our resounding answer is yes, because of Jesus. Not because Libby and Nigel lead us in such great sung worship, although they do. Thank you. But our hope is because of Jesus, the one to whom we sing about. There is this kind of like mystery in, in the Gospels that continues to, to plague me. I'm not sure if that language is wrong, but um, four times in these chapters, it talks about the only child. So the centurion kind of, that's a bit of a, a, bit of a stretch, but I'm going to claim it anyway. He kind of comes with his servant, but it's like his favored servant. And there's the, the demon-possessed boy. There's the, the only daughter. There is the widow's only son. These people, they come to Jesus because the one being afflicted is their only child. I think there's something significant about it. Scholars might just put it down to pragmatic reasons. You know, they like, wouldn't have anyone to, to help support them. 
for Jairus, you know, it's his only daughter. She's 12. She's about to enter the time when she would be betrothed in, in marriage and essentially continue his family line. But I can't help but think, actually, Luke's trying to highlight something more. He's trying to highlight the compassion of God. Four times he continues to, to make a point of highlighting the fact that this is the only child. Uh, for a long time, my wife and I, we, we struggled to conceive. And then when we did, um, we experienced a number of uh, miscarriages. When I plan these things, it's like you don't think it's going to affect you when you say it. And um, not to, I don't know, throw shade at people, but like a lot of people just give bad words of comfort. I found the most comforting thing anyone said was my mother. She got around me. My mother experienced countless miscarriages. And she said to me, you know what, every time it hurt because... It was never a case of, oh, well, at least, you know, you've got another child. At least this happens. She was always like, I want that one. I wanted that one. When you go to funerals, no one is there saying to the family, it's like, oh, well, at least you've got each other. It's like recognizing the pain and the hurt. And I think here you find the compassion of God He's not saying, oh, well, like, at least you've got your, your wider family of faith to support you. At least this. He's saying, no, like, his compassion extends and it saves these individuals from that pain. It's the compassion of God revealed. It reveals a God who, who deeply cares for us. He doesn't just care for, for his plans and his purposes to be achieved, but also he plans for us as his, as his sons and daughters. And so this story is kind of the story of Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter, but it's sandwiched around this interruption. So you'd think Jesus, he's seemingly never in a hurry. We can learn a lot from the cadence of Jesus' life. I heard one person remark to the cadence of his life. He was never in too much of a hurry. He would welcome the distractions. How often are we, I think I'm painfully guilty of it, in which I leave the house and I, I bump into my neighbors, but I'm in so much of a hurry I can't stop and, and speak a word to them. And these women, it's kind of pretty obvious that Luke is trying to highlight the fact that they're linked together. It's a 12-year-old girl and then a woman who's been afflicted by this condition for, for 12 years. They're linked together. Many people would say, you know what, it, it represents something much larger than themselves. Not only does it speak into these conditions of, of this girl and this woman, but it also speaks into wider Israel. It speaks to God's people. So frequently, biblical authors will refer to, to Israel, to God's people, as, as a virgin Israel, maybe stolen away. Or it speaks of Israel as being exiled and, and impure. And it constantly reminds us of what God is in the business of doing, redeeming that which is lost. But also when we encounter this, this woman, we realize how health is a fragile and precious commodity when it's taken away. For someone who's actually also in, in poverty, it's kind of this downward spiral that is so difficult to get out of. And that's why we see her. She's, she's fighting through the crowds to get through because she's desperate. And just like Jairus, she realizes that nothing else works except for Jesus. 
So according to, to the Jewish law, she would have been ritually unclean because of her medical condition. She would have been exiled and, and isolated away from her people. Yeah, she would have been without hope. It, often it talks about how she, is, she has exhausted all her options because no one else could cure her. So she tried, but no one else could do it. And this woman is the, the epitome of poor. She is destitute to, to all degrees. It is like financially, socially, spiritually, physically. You might even say, you know what, this, this lady, she is as good as dead because she has no life, no true life to live. But we see it. She, in her desperation, actually causes her to, to fight through the crowds. Luke, on multiple occasions, he, he makes reference to the fact that the, the crowds, they're pressing in, they're crushing her. I don't know, different translations use like different adjectives. People will say, oh, it, it speaks of a spiritual oppression in which our faith is being squeezed. How often do we feel the same way, just going through the struggles of life? I know some of you, the kind of the day jobs you face, you are constantly in this battle in which it feels like your faith is being squeezed from you. But she fights through and she, she only just grabs the, the edge of his cloak. And you've got to wonder, in that moment, all her suspicions were true, were found to be true. She's immediately healed. She is released from everything that oppressed her. Again, people will say that in Luke 4, when Jesus stands up in a temple and he, he kind of quotes this Isaiah prophecy, the subsequent chapters are kind of proving his words true. When he gets up and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners or release from the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind and set the oppressed free. It's about being released. It's yet another occasion which this woman, she experiences his words to be true. But it's this bizarre occasion in which Jesus suddenly gets into a bit of a frenzy, you might say, and he's like, he demands to know who it is who has touched him. So maybe contrast to, to the lady in, in chapter 7 who comes and anoints Jesus. She comes to do something to Jesus. This lady has come to extract healing from Jesus. And this thing I'm utterly convinced of from the, from the earliest pages of the Bible, God is, is revealed as being so generous to us. He wants to, he wants to give, but he does object to us taking. He wants to give. He doesn't want us to take. There's a distinct difference. And so he makes it personal because it's not enough just for this lady to be released and healed, but also she needs to be known And so he refers to his daughter. Well, after all the frenzy of like convincing Peter that it is important that he knows who touched her. Amidst all the, the hemming in and pressing into the crowds, he knew that someone touched her and he knows that someone needs to be known. And so he refers to her not just as, excuse me, lady, but it's that personal touch of daughter. It speaks this like, word of affirmation. Someone who's been outcast and exiled and, and shunned from her community is now actually welcomed in. You might also say, if you've got good memory, going back a few weeks, we had this kind of a, what the right word is, kind of like grating moment. We find Jesus saying things that you're like, 
kind of puts you a bit on edge. There's this interaction and his disciples ask him, like, oh, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And he simply says, he kind of like almost rebukes it. And he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the words of God and put it into practice. So what we find is it's actually this woman who is being affirmed as Jesus' family. This is what it looks like to do the will of God, to, to seek God amidst all the challenges, amongst, amongst all the pressure happening. It is to pursue life. That is the will of God. Does that make sense? Because not only is it a, like a, a therapeutic gospel, but also one that calls for obedience as well. You also get this bizarre moment where you're, you're questioning whether Luke is contradicting himself because he's recorded Jesus saying, you know what, power has gone out from me. So saying, actually, you know what, Jesus already recognizes that it's his power that has healed the woman. It is the divine power of God at work in this woman's life that has healed her body. But now he says, daughter, your, your faith has healed you. So it begs the question, like, what is it? Is it like our faith or is it God's power? And it is this intersection of the two. It is when divine power meets our faith that we encounter salvation, this healing. Maybe it kind of underplays it when the, the biblical editors just say, your faith has made you well. He's talking something far deeper than that. It's this Greek word of sozo. And it's a word that's going to be repeated. And it's right in this moment. It says, daughter, your... So he affirms that her place within the community. He also commends her faith the fact that she would get herself in a position to be affected by, by the power of God. And then it's this command, it says, go in peace. And I think maybe for us we realize that it's, this go in peace means many things. It is a commissioning. I always use the language of, gosh, you know what, God has filled us with his spirit and his life. May we go and leak. I think that's one, one way. We, living our lives like colanders in which actually the peace of God that has filled us, satisfied us, healed us, brought us full salvation. As we go in peace, that would spread to everywhere we go. But it's also a command which isn't necessarily spoken to the woman. But as he says, go in peace, it's also a command to all the, all the bystanders, all those people who are there and they hear it and they realize that actually our responsibility is to welcome this woman who was once exiled and far off back into our midst, back into our family, back into our community. Because Jesus has crossed over the boundary between purity and impurity. He has made what is unclean, clean, and redeemed her back into a family. Because you aren't just saved to be an individual, but rather you're saved into something, into a community. So there is this constant charge for the last 2,000 years on the community to actually welcome people back in. And it's the same thing we see from the previous chapter with this sinful woman. He says the same thing to her, go in peace. But it's slightly more obvious than the previous chapter. And so then it kind of comes to the, you might say, the, the second piece of bread in this sandwich as the story kind of reverts back to, to Jairus. We have one of the attendants from the synagogue, and he comes, and he's like, you know what, actually, all is lost. 
Your daughter, like she isn't on the verge of dying, but she has died now. Just don't bother the teacher. It's another occasion in which someone has perceived wrongly who Jesus is. They think he is just a moral teacher. They haven't perceived that he is actually the Lord, God himself. The previous chapter, we've realized that this is the God who, just like in Genesis 1, is able to create order out of chaos, calming the seas. He's the one who heals bodies, delivers people from demons. This is the God who can also heal sickness and death itself. This friend of his, just like the crowds pressing in, he he speaks unbelief to Jairus. And so rather than Jesus rebuking his friend, he simply, you've got to wonder, amidst like all the crowds, he looks Jairus straight in the eyes. Do not fear. Only believe. She will be saved. And this is where you find this is a repeat of the same language. He told, he told the woman, your faith has healed you. And now he's saying, don't be afraid. Only believe she will be saved. And it's the same language. It's as if he's, Luke's trying to make us realize that the first healing was sort of like a, a down payment, a guarantee for what he's about to do. Does that make sense? And I think for many of us, this is where we are, this very moment. Many of us in some metaphorical sense, we are like Jairus in this moment. We have just observed Jesus restoring this lady who's been afflicted for so long, and yet we are struggling with our own faith because we haven't seen the breakthrough that we so long to. But Jesus, he's, he's encouraging us and he's reminding us that actually all our fear, all our doubt, all our unbelief, it must give way to faith. It must give way to a recognition of who Jesus truly is and trust in his abilities. Because amidst all the crushing crowds hemming in around us, the, the evidence is seemingly stacked against us. And then we find Jesus, he does turn his attention and he kind of seemingly rebukes the, the crowds. And he's like, stop wailing. She's not dead, she is just asleep. I feel like over the years, this has been such an encouraging word from, from God to us to, to continue to bring us hope. I think in the last few years, it has reminded us of a, of a hope that, that God has for the church where we see decline across the, the global north, western, predominantly white churches, actually Jesus is saying, actually, you know what? The church isn't dead, it's just asleep. There's still hope for it. I think we touched on a bit this morning already, just all our, all our dreams, all our, all our promises, the way in which the Spirit was leading Libby to, to lead us earlier. All these dreams, all these promises, they're not dead They're just dormant and asleep, waiting to be aroused and woken up. I think Jesus is trying to remind the people in this context, but also us continually today, that the condition that we observe around us is more temporary than we perceive. Does that make sense? Because actually there is a kingdom reality that is, is more true than what we see. 
So Jesus, the, the Lord of heaven and earth, God himself, is him that takes her hand. And just like this woman who would have been exiled as impure because of her condition, so would a dead body. It would be another contagion which threatened the, on a practical level, the hygiene of the community. So if you touched it, you would be impure and unclean and you too would be exiled. But it's Jesus who, who crosses over the boundary. He's crossed over the boundary from unclean to clean to from impure to make it pure. And now he's crossing over, you might say, an even greater boundary of death to life. He takes her by the hand. You've got to wonder if power would have gone out from Jesus, power to, to transform someone, just by then touching the hem of his garment without him even realizing how much more power must there be if Jesus himself, fully aware of what's going on, reaches out and takes her hand. This is the power at work. It's here that they encounter Jesus. You never get a breakdown of like, well, how does he do it? How does this healing happen? None of the biblical authors like offer that explanation. They never kind of lift up the bonnet and show you how it all works spiritually. There are some mysteries that remain a mystery until we get to the other side but we encounter God himself. At the beginning of Hebrews, the, the author, he says this, he says, the Son, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. This is the God who they continue to encounter. This is the God who comes out and takes her hand. She's restored to life. I think the final point I just want to highlight is, again, he gives this command. Get us something to eat. Feed her. Because our salvation isn't just a spiritual one, but it's also a physical one. The body still has needs. Luke's gospel in particular just highlights the, the importance of eating together because it's a symbol and it signifies family. So just like this woman who has been exiled, he says, like, go in peace. You are now part of a family. Everyone else, welcome her in. He's now saying the same thing about this little girl. He's saying, give her something to eat. Welcome her back into the family. What you thought was lost has actually been redeemed and won back for you. So welcome her in. But I think as far as, like, what does this mean for us today? People commenting about church decline, kind of what's been happening the last few years, particularly since COVID with so many people, particularly my generation and younger, kind of growing disillusioned, um, deconstructing their faith. They said like the issue isn't about truth, isn't about resources, isn't the, the fact that like someone just needs to write a really good book. It's like we've got a million and three books on offer. The issue is always discipleship. The issue is always like genuine community. We have all the resources, but it's always that question of like, who is discipling you? Who is feeding you? Who's sitting you down, like sharing a meal with you? But as well as that playing the victim, it's also just the other side of it. It's gosh, like who am I discipling? Irrespective if you're young, old, you've been in this game for all your life or 
two minutes. Who's discipling me? Who am I discipling? Who are you feeding and what are you feeding on? What is it that you're eating? These are the big questions. But most of all, I think, as we, as we kind of go through this story, um, the Gospel of Luke and then into Acts, it is never just for, for you to gain this secondhand revelation. We hope that as we unpack this, different people speak into it, maybe offer some theological insight you hadn't considered before or a prophetic insight, that it would then inspire you to go back and, and feed on this, read it for yourselves. I'm sure there is countless other pearls of wisdom within this passage that I have completely ignored. So go back and feed on it in your hearts. I think the, the overwhelming sense is this. Jesus is Lord. That is such good news to us. That we can walk with him, trust in him, seek him in all things. So we're going to pray in a moment, and um, I wonder whether there's kind of two groups of people that this story speaks into. Maybe we are, we resonate with being one of these women, even if you're a man. That was another theological insight into this we can get into, but even if you're a man, you know what, you need, you've exhausted your options and nothing else works and you need Jesus amidst all the, the pressing into the crowd, you need just to be able to reach out and touch Jesus. And we'd love to, to pray for you. We're going to talk about this next week, how the fact Jesus got his disciples around, and he gave them the authority, particularly in John's Gospel, it unpacks how after he left the Holy Spirit, it came and empowered us. We live, we don't have to like constrict ourselves to the context of our reading. Actually, we live where the Holy Spirit is alive and active amongst God's people. I'm digressing. We're going to pray for if you kind of feel like one of these women, that you need God's breakthrough, whatever it is. But also, we want to pray for you if actually the position of Jairus does resonate with you. That with all the crowd pressing in, hemming you, it is quenching your faith and robbing you of that. And we want to instill in you not only hope, but also faith. You may run the race with, with perseverance and strength. You feel like God's going to do that. Does that sound right? Why don't we stand for a moment? Maybe be able to worship? There's no magic recipe that means like for the spirit to move, we need some soft, gentle music, preferably played by a keyboard. <laughs> but actually, while this is happening, the rest of us, we just continue to, to turn our eyes to Jesus. He is our only hope. But again, if that resonates with you, if you feel like that woman, you need 
the power of Jesus to come in and provide breakthrough for you. Maybe if you're Jairus, actually, you have all these other lies speaking into your life and you need Jesus to speak a, a word of clarity and truth into you. We'd love to pray for you. And there's all this space down here at the bottom. So I'll encourage you, invite you to come forward and then whoever you are that consider yourself part of the ministry team, active in our KFCs, please come and, and join with these guys and continue to minister them as we pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for who you are. We thank you. We thank you for the way in which you use humanity, use Luke to, to highlight and reveal more of who you are in the person of Jesus. So continue to be at work amongst us now that we would know you as our, our Lord and Savior in all ways. God, we fix our eyes upon you, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the one whom is worthy of all our adoration, but also the one who is able to transform our situations. God, be at work. Thank you.